Next, we want to look at parables, which is a unique literary genre. Parables are similar to narrative, but they have some distinctions. They're different from just strict narrative. We'll discuss that element. Certainly, they're not poetic. They're not necessarily wisdom literature. Prophetic material sometimes uses the genre of parables quite often. And actually, prophetic material includes virtually all of the other genres. Is, uh, is there any way... I tried to say that epistles could be like a mystical literature. Is that incorrect? Uh, yeah, that would, yeah, that would be an incorrect description of epistolary. I mean, it's not that they're not, you know, this is wisdom to live what the way God instructs, but not strictly speaking in terms of a genre. Yeah, we have a separate Hebrew wisdom genre that is characteristic of both Old and New Testament. Now, parables, let's talk a little bit about what they are all about. First of all, they are important in that not so much because of the quantity, although in the Gospel of Matthew, one writer, S. Lewis Johnson, says that 43% of Matthew has to do with parables, which is a pretty large percentage of one of the, the Gospels. So they are prominent in the New Testament. Another writer says that one-third of Christ's teaching was through the use of parables. So since they are different, and since Christ used them so frequently, then we need to pay some attention to the unique characteristics of them. Because they are not straightforward, they're not always that easy to interpret. In fact, in terms of interpretation, this is an area where a lot of Bible teachers and a lot of scholars kind of fall short in terms of interpreting them. Proverbs 26.7 says the following, and let me read it to you and see if you can identify. You're going to have to pull deep into your memory here. What kind of parallelism do we have in this? Let me read it to you. Like the legs which are useless to the lame, that's line one, so is a proverb in the mouth of fools. And the word that's translated proverb there is the same word that in the Old Testament is translated parable. And I'll talk some more about that. Let me read again. Like the legs which are useless to the lame, so is a parable, you might say, in the mouth of fools. What kind of parallelism is that? Contrast. No. No, it's not antithetical. It's not synonymous. It's not synthetic. What do you have at the beginning? You have a picture. You have a mental... Well, you have a, an emblem. It's emblematic. Remember? Remember the emblematic one that we used? What was it? Uh, or a gold ring in the nose of a swine? That's the picture. So also as a woman without discretion. That's the teaching. So emblematic. You have a picture or you have an emblem or something very visible, very concrete, that illustrates a spiritual or practical point. So... 
the emblem like the legs which are useless to the lame. In other words, a lame person has legs, but because he's lame, they're useless. In other words, uh, they're not functional. So also, a proverb in the mouth of a fool, he may be able to spout a proverb, but because he's a fool, it's useless to him because he doesn't follow it, or he ignores it, or whatever the case may be, thus making him a fool. See, Let's see what the teaching there is. Emblematic. Anyway, I just use that just to kind of introduce and to kind of foretell you here, this area of parables is kind of broader than you might think. And we'll talk some more about that. Kaiser and Silva, one of the texts that I put on your list of texts that you can select, says the following, Perhaps the most distinctive feature of Jesus' teaching methods was his use of parables. And that makes him important. Another writer, Fee and Stewart, another hermeneutical book, Parables have suffered misinterpretation second only to Revelation. It's quite a statement. That's what I was saying earlier. They're abused, they're misused, misinterpreted. So, Fee and Stewart, Parables have suffered misinterpretation second only to the book of Revelation. That's why it's important. Another course text, Klein, Blomberg, Hubbard. The stories Jesus told, such as the Good Samaritan, the Prodigal Son, and the Sower, rank as among the most famous and popular parts of all Scripture. So even a lot of unbelievers, less and less, as our culture degenerates, but even a lot of believers have heard of the Prodigal Son, the Good Samaritan, Parable of the Sower. So it's important that we have a good handle on this because unbelievers are familiar. We can use that. So what's the extent? Well, where do they occur uh, in the Old Testament? There's examples of parables. One, the most famous one, is Nathan addressing David after David sins with Bathsheba and then murders Uriah. Nathan the prophet confronts David, and this is a wise use of confrontation there, because you don't confront the king without risking your neck, literally. So we have a few parables in the Old Testament. Not a lot. Another well-known one is the vineyard with wild grapes. That one is found in Isaiah 5. If you want scriptures for Nathan and David, that's 2 Samuel 12. First 13 verses. We also have a parable in Ezekiel 17, 3 through 10. A great eagle, 17, 3 through 10. And the word parable occurs in that context. Another one, the boiling pot with flesh and bones, Ezekiel 24, 3 through 14. The word can be translated parable, occurs there. And there's a few others in the Old Testament, and the place where you find them most frequently is by Jesus himself in the New Testament. And in fact, he's the only one that uses that genre. One writer says that his parables, referring to Jesus, his parables include suspense, simple plot conflicts, heightened contrasts, sometimes exaggeration, certainly hyperbole, reversals, atypical circumstances, inclusion of direct discourse, 
rhetorical questions, and stress. All of these are literary devices. And the quote is that Jesus uses some of these literary devices in the use of parables. And because the word parable, I'm going to give you the results of a word study there as well in a moment, because there's so much flexibility in the usage of the word, there's a variety of numbers in terms of which which ones do you count as actual parables. There's at least 30. All scholars would include 30 of them, but some would include up to 73, from 30 to 73 parables from the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. give you just a visual picture. That's the Sea of Galilee. This is looking north. And this cove here is considered to be the likely location where Jesus, remember in Matthew chapter 13, where he first begins to speak in parables, tells us that he's on a boat and there's probably people lined out on the, the shore there. Another view from an aerial shot, same location. Up the hill from this uh, would be uh, what's considered the Sermon on the Mount, off the slide there, up in the top. Yeah. Now, that's not my photograph, but yeah, I've been there a couple of times. So you can imagine Jesus sitting here and a crowd listening to the parables, and we'll come back to that Matthew 13 passage in a moment. But that gives you a visual picture of where it took place. And it's called the Cove of what? The Sower. That's a perfect. Yeah, perfect theater. A natural theater. And they say the acoustics are very similar to what you would find in a theater because the water is kind of reflective. The water kind of amplifies as you speak on a, unless you have a windy day. But what are the properties? Main properties. Let's look at kind of the essence of it. Roy Zook describes them. Uh, Now, he's describing what we generally think of in terms of parables, in terms of a genre. He's not speaking in terms of the the wide spectrum of possibilities of things that can be translated parable, and it has other translations as well. And I'm going to give you a word study in a moment here. He says a they're a true this is important a true to life story to illustrate or illumine a truth. So it's a story. It's a narrative. But it is true to life. It is fictional, but it's true to life. In other words, it could occur. It could have occurred. And some of the parables may have been things that actually did occur, but not necessarily. Now, this is a little bit different from narrative. Narrative is historical narrative. Parables are stories that may not be true, but they're true to life. And we have the purpose of it is to illustrate or illumine a truth. That's a good statement of the parables that we're talking about. Now, in terms of the term that is translated parable, in the New Testament, let's look at it. It's parabole. Where do we get the word parable? Parabole occurs 50 times in the New Testament, and if you do a word study, you're going to find out that it's used in a variety of ways. In fact, that's an English transliteration of it, parabole. And in the Old Testament, you have a corresponding word 
that the New Testament word, I think, is the synonym of mashal. And remember when we were talking about wisdom literature? I told you I was going to talk some more about it. And I saved it for this time because a mashal is translated parable in the Old Testament. A mashal. occurs 39 times in the Old Testament. Now, if you look, we'll take the first, the Old Testament word first, mashal, and then I'm going to show you that you have kind of a corresponding range of meaning in the New Testament, which makes these two words synonymous. So, mashal, first of all, when we were talking about wisdom literature, it can be translated as proverb, as I showed you in that verse that I started off with, the what was it? Proverbs 26.7. It's translated proverb. So a proverb is a mashal. And what we mean by a proverb, just a short, sometimes just two-line, wise saying. So it's not necessarily a story, if you will. It can also be used as a dark saying, and in some context it's translated that way. A dark saying. For example, Psalm 49.4. Or, thirdly, it is used in a context which sometimes it's translated a taunt. Isaiah 14.4 would be an example of a taunt. Fourthly, it can be used as an oracle. Numbers 24. Remember the whole situation with Balaam there and the children of Israel? Numbers 24, verses 20 through 23 the word oracle, it's translated as oracle, and it's mashal, same word, same Hebrew word. So it has this wide range, wide range of meaning. And by the way, these are just the major usages. One that I don't have included here is like a byword. But number five here is parable. And in that context, when it's translated a parable, it has more that idea of a short story. Okay? So a parable is a mashal, but so also is this very short, pithy statement that we call a proverb. That's a mashal as well. And in the New Testament, the word parabole follows the same pattern. That's why there's a wide range of parables of Jesus, because some of those parables of Jesus are essentially proverbs. An example here. When Jesus speaks of the blind leading the blind, it is called a parable. But yet it's just a little phrase, actually. More of a proverb. The parable of the mustard seed is almost closer to a proverb than it is to what we generally think as a short little story. Similitude, which is almost like a proverb. The parable of leaven, Matthew 13, that one would be a parable, but it's not a story. It's more like a similitude. You might put the mustard seed parable under that category as, as well. And then it's used in this sense of a short story, which there's at least 30 of them. So those that go to 73 would include some of these as a parable. You see the range of ways that it can be used? And this is why it's believe that parabole is essentially the Greek equivalent of mashal. 
Okay, we've looked at the importance, where they are found, or the extent, some of the properties, primarily looking at the words themselves. What are some of the characteristics of parables? The main characteristic is they illustrate truth. Illustrate truth. This is very, very important. This is where a lot of Bible teachers sometimes misuse parables. And again, just like I've said before, don't develop doctrine from narrative literature. Develop theology and doctrine from epistolary literature. So also, don't develop doctrine from parables. They illustrate truth. They don't set forth truth. So if your only basis for a truth is a parable, then that truth or that doctrine is on shaky exegetical ground. So once you have a truth or a doctrine, then a parable can illuminate it or can illustrate it. And that's what Jesus does. He illustrates truth using parables. Secondly, another characteristic is there's oftentimes comparison and contrast. And usually something is contrasted and or compared in a parable. So the element of comparison and contrast is very prominent in parables. And usually there's something very visible, concrete, is used to not only illustrate a truth, but to compare it to some something. In other words, something concrete is compared to something that is more abstract and or contrast. So there's a spiritual lesson using a concrete illustration. Here's a very important aspect as well. They pack a punch. It's the best way I can describe it. There's an analogy in terms of this packing a punch idea in that it's designed to elicit a response. The analogy is when you tell a joke, you're kind of telling either a story or you're a series of thoughts, and then when you get to the end of it, you give them what? We call it the punchline. And it's with the punchline that uh, the humor is introduced and the response that you're looking for in humor or a joke is laughter. See that? Parables are analogous to that in that you're not looking for laughter, but you're they're designed to elicit a response. So a parable is looking for a spiritual response, not laughter. But it has something like some of them, not all of them, but some of most of them have what you might describe as a punchline. Probably the easiest one to illustrate this is the parable of the Good Samaritan. Remember the two? One's a Levite, and what's the other one? I uh, can't remember the two bad guys in the parable. In other words, they pass by a guy that's in trouble on the side of the road, beaten up. They cross the street, go to the other side, and they pass him. One's a Levite. In other words, what Jesus is saying, okay, here's the religious guys. Here's the guys with uh, the religious robes and carrying their Old Testaments and, you know, they're walking, you know, with their noses up in the air, very spiritual. You know, they're too spiritual to get their hands dirty type of thing. That's the parable that he's teaching. 
So he has these two religious guys pass by. And then who passes by? The third guy? Okay, that's the punchline. In other words, this is a slap in the face. This despised guy, a Samaritan, unclean, compromiser, not Jewish, not holy, he's the one that stops. That's the punchline. And if you're reading that and you're Jewish, that punches you in the gut. Not for a laugh, but for a spiritual response. So look for that element. And some of them have it more clearly than others, but uh, that's one thing that parables sometimes offer you. So number one, they illustrate truth. They use comparison and contrast. Number three, they pack a punch. A fourth characteristic is they are true to life, as we've said. Life-likeness. True to life. They could actually happen. They could actually take place. And in that culture, that's using that same parable, it was very common for the religious guys to just... And it's real common in our culture to... You know, I don't want to get my... You know, I don't want to waste my time. I don't have time. I'm too busy. I don't have time to stop and help this guy. I I can see he's bleeding. I know he's hurting. But, you know, I'm above that. I'm... I've got higher priorities here. I gotta keep moving. And who stops? Maybe a drug user in our culture or gang leader or something, you know. He's the one that stops and helps the guy. So that could actually happen. Life likeness. So they're not, they're not imaginary. They're not fanciful, but they are lifelike. And an element that, uh, I observe, in fact, I, I hesitate to introduce this because we speak so negatively about allegory, but we need to be honest in that when Jesus interprets his own parables in Matthew chapter 13, what does Jesus do? He almost tells us that there are some allegorical elements in some of the parables. And what allegory does is it assigns meaning to the different parts of the story. So they may, and I, I, I want to emphasize, they may have some allegorical elements, and I say may only because, or even include this, only because that seems to be what Jesus is doing when he interprets some of his own parables. Remember? Parable of the soils. Each of the soils represents something, so all of the elements of the story have meaning there. Now, in general... In general, what we would say is parables generally illustrate one truth in general. But because of what Jesus does, I have to admit that in some cases it may convey different elements that are being illustrated as truth. Make sense? So you can't be too hard-lined here Way back, I used to kind of emphasize, look for one truth. And I would still use that as kind of a guideline in general. In other words, start with just one truth and don't try to force the parable to walk on all fours, so to speak. In other words, don't inject all this other meaning. If Jesus wants to do it, let him do it. (laughs) But... I'd be a little bit more cautious in my interpretation of some of the parables. I will look for one truth and and generally stop there. 
and let Jesus introduce whatever he wants to in interpreting his own parables. Okay? All righty, let's get back to hermeneutics. Last hour we were looking at parables. We looked at the importance. We looked at the extent or where they occur. They're not real frequent like the other areas that we've looked at. Some of their unique properties, primarily looking at the the words that are used for parables, and most importantly, the characteristics of parables that are important in order to properly interpret them. Let me next look at their purpose. And Jesus at least gives us his reasoning or his rationale or his purpose for speaking in parables. And he does this partly in response to a question by the disciples. So let's take a look at what Jesus does in Matthew chapter 13. So you might turn there. And I think this is important and it tells us something of the nature of parables as well, besides giving us purpose. And it also puts it in perspective in terms of the overall broad life of Christ, if you will, and the mission of Christ. Let's take a look at, and let's just begin. Keith, do you want to start reading? Read verses 1 and 2 there. Matthew 13. That day Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea. Do you remember the picture? He was sitting by the sea. And large crowds gathered to him. So he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd was standing on the beach. Okay, you got that picture in your mind now. I showed you a photograph. Jim, do you want to read 3 and 4? And he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them up. And then he continues, and he gives the parable of the sower. That's why that cove was called the cove of the sower. Skip down. Patricia, begin, read 10 and 11. The disciples came to him and asked, Why do you speak to the people in parables? He replied, The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Okay. Now, we need to develop the context to understand what Jesus is getting at in verse 11. He gives the first part or the first reason or purpose for speaking in parables in response to a direct question. Why do you speak in parables? And if you study Matthew's Gospel, he has never spoken in parables up to this point. So it's a little surprising to the disciples for Jesus to all of a sudden speak in parables. So they ask the question. Now, you need the context to understand. In the first 12 chapters of Matthew's Gospel... In fact, you could even use, remember that literary device of the pivot? Remember we spoke of that? Where everything kind of turns on one event? Well, chapter 12 of the Gospel of Matthew serves a little bit like that pivot point. So, up to chapter 12, Jesus becomes more and more popular, crowds become larger and larger, and people are beginning to gather to hear the Lord Jesus Christ. 
But also, parallel with that, we have this, the uh, Jewish leaders are becoming more and more antagonistic, more confrontational, more determined to eliminate Jesus. Now, backtrack into chapter 12, and this is the high point of opposition. This is the peak here. Look at verse 14. You want to read that one, Mark? But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. This is the first mention of them desiring to kill him. How they might destroy him. And it's a plot. It's not well formulated yet, but their intention is clear. The decision has been made. And if you read on, they are attributing the power of the miracles that he's performing and the things that he's doing to Satan himself, Beelzebub. So the leadership of the nation of Israel had decided this is not the Messiah. He's a false Christ and he comes from the pit of hell. He's of Beelzebub. That's their decision. Now the plot to kill him begins in chapter 12. So now, all of a sudden, here's a multitude, here's a crowd, probably mixed. There's probably some believers, some unbelievers mixed in, probably some Jewish leaders looking for an occasion. And the rest of the Gospel of Matthew is moving in the direction of the cross where they ultimately fulfill their plan, their plot. So the question is, why do you speak in parables and what is the first reason that Jesus gives in verse 11 and then we'll move on to the second reason. There's a twofold reason. Now, at least that's the purpose of this set of parables and perhaps in more or less a purpose of uh, all of the parables of the Lord Jesus Christ. What's the first reason that he gives in verse 11? Okay, to the disciples, for them, it is to reveal truth by way of illustration, to illuminate things that are mysterious concerning the kingdom of heaven. Now, when Jesus speaks of the kingdom, you have to think in terms of what would the disciples have conceived of when they thought of the kingdom? They were not amillennialists. They were thinking of a literal earthly kingdom. So these parables have something to do, at least chapter 13 parables have something to do with the kingdom. All right? Now he gives another reason. Do you want to read that one, uh, Beverly? For whoever has to him more will be given, and he will have abundance. But whoever does not have even... What he has will be taken away. Okay. Basically, those that have probably sensitivity, inclination, desire to know more about things of God, those that have, more is going to be given to them. Those that don't, even what they don't have is going to be removed. Keep reading Keith again, verse 13. Therefore, I speak to them in parables, because while seeing, they do not see. And while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. Okay, there's the second reason that he speaks in parables. What is that reason? To those that have and those that are sensitive to spiritual truth, it'll reveal or it'll illustrate truth. 
to those that are insensitive. In other words, the leadership of the nation of Israel. What does it do? To them? To them, it conceals the truth. And that speaks a little bit of the nature of parables. They they are somewhat obscure. That's why I've got truth there with a, kind of a cloud there. They're sometimes cloudy. They're not they're not distinct. They're not like epistolary literature that is direct and somewhat clear. They're not entirely understandable apart from a sensitivity to truth. So here you have a twofold purpose for the use of parables. And then in verse 14, Jim, he gives a biblical basis for it, and he goes back to Isaiah. We won't read the whole passage, but read the first part of what he says. Read all of verse 14. And in their case, speaking of the Jews, Jews, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, you will keep on hearing, but you will not understand, and you will keep on seeing, but you will not perceive. Okay. So, they're going to hear words, but they're not going to perceive. They're not going to understand. They're not going to be able to observe and interpret and have understanding. And if you keep on reading, he continues to give the reason. Uh, For the heart of this people has become dull, and their ears they scarcely hear, etc. Now, in the Isaiah passage, I'll illustrate that in a moment, but there's a third reason in that parables also fulfill prophecy. They fulfill Isaiah. They also fulfill the ministry of the Messiah. Threefold purpose. Now, what did God say to Isaiah? If you study the context, the essence of what God is saying to Isaiah and what Isaiah is conveying in this passage, he's saying... To Isaiah, I will send you, but you will be rejected. Your message is going to be rejected. And as a result of that rejection, people's hearts are going to be hardened to the truth. They're not going to be able to perceive. And that's the reason why he speaks in parables. Make sense? So if I can diagram it, the truth is going to be proclaimed, whether it be through Isaiah through any prophet or through the Lord Jesus Christ. Truth will be proclaimed. And that truth, if you have a sensitivity to it, parables will illustrate and illumine that truth. But if you have rejected the Messiah and you're insensitive to spiritual truth, you're going to have a hardening of a heart. Same working of truth. Now, the Isaiah 55 passage, when it says that when God sends out his message, it's going to accomplish its goal. Remember that passage? How does it go? The word of God will not return void, that passage. Isaiah 55, I believe. Well, there's a twofold component. Anytime the truth goes out, just because people don't respond to it doesn't mean that it came back void. What it means, it, it accomplished this purpose of hardening the heart of those that are insensitive to it. So if you apply that principle in terms of your ministry, when people reject the truth, it's not that God's Word came back void. It's that they're not sensitive to it. They're not open to it. They don't want to hear it. And if you do proclaim it, it hardens their hearts. 
So what in reality, what Jesus is doing in Matthew chapter 13 by speaking in parables, he's actually hiding the truth. That's an act of grace because clear teaching is only going to harden their hearts even more so. Make sense? So truth is going to accomplish its purpose and it's not going to come back void in that there are going to be some that are sensitive to it and respond to it. But it's not going to come back void also from the negative in that it's going to strike the heart of the unbeliever and harden the heart. That's what's going on with Pharaoh in uh, the book, book of Exodus. And you see examples of this throughout Old Testament history. Make sense? Okay, 55.11. Very good. And this passage, Isaiah 6.10, in Matthew's Gospel, 6.9 and 10. So that's the purpose of parables, or at least, at least that set of parables where Jesus is teaching in parables in Matthew chapter 13. But in general, they do, in fact, illustrate truth. That's one of the characteristics that we looked at. But they can also hide truth. Well, in interpreting parables, what are some guiding principles that we can utilize? Number one, there's this contextual principle. Context. It's nothing new. Is very important in interpreting parables. Context determines meaning in every case, and it's particularly important when you interpret parables. The parables, one that I've seen misused very, very often, are contained in Matthew chapter 25. And particularly that one parable that deals with doing unto others is doing unto Christ. Remember that one? That's a parable. What's the context of Matthew chapter 25? That one is used oftentimes, I think it's misused oftentimes to appeal to prison ministries or Joy Junction type ministries. In other words, we should be doing these things. What's the context of that? Anyone know? Uh, there's three parables in that uh, Matthew chapter 25. All three of them are in what context? Matthew chapter 24. Well, it's the context of Matthew 24 and 25. They go together. In other words, Matthew 24 and 25, we refer to that as what discourse? The, the Olivet, yeah. Everybody's got it. Olivet discourse. What does the Olivet discourse pertain to? Mark mentioned it. Deals with issues of the second coming. Deals with eschatology. So these parables in Matthew chapter 25 relate to probably a future period of time eschatologically. Now we can draw principles from it, but these are different from some of the other parables that are more broad-based. These have an eschatological application primarily. Does that make sense? So be careful in interpreting any parable, look at the context. Now, I gave you the context of Matthew chapter 13. They're within that context in the life of Christ. 
Christ is now shifting the emphasis of what the kingdom of heaven is going to look like. And I think what he's describing is an interim period of time before the Jewish concept of the kingdom that the disciples were anticipating. There's going to be a period of time between, and they don't know, they're not clear on this yet. Jesus is going to make this clear in the Olivet Discourse. But the Matthew 13 parables, Jesus begins to introduce to them new concepts of what the kingdom is going to look like until he returns. And in fact, some of those parables refer to his return. That makes sense? So those are unique parables that pertain to a unique aspect of the kingdom of God. So context is very, very important in understanding the meaning of parables. Because these parables are down to the earth, that's why I've got the sketch here, this guy's in the dirt there, they're related to culture of the time, culture of the first century, so apply the cultural principle that we talked about. They're drawn from ancient Jewish culture, ancient Israel. So some of the customs, some of the issues involved there pertain to that culture. Parable of the ten virgins. You have to understand what a Jewish wedding, the components of a Jewish wedding to understand the parable of the ten virgins. There are three major parts to a Jewish wedding. It was a betrothal period, right? Where the couple were legally married. They entered into the contract, but they were not living together. It would be analogous to an engagement, but it was more than an engagement in that they were committed. They were wedded. They were legally bound. It had certain purposes. One of the purposes was to demonstrate purity and to demonstrate loyalty to one another. It also had the purpose of preparing oneself for marriage. The husband prepared a home and prepared all of the things that would be needed to be able to maintain a household, all of the finances. The wife prepared herself to be a wife, so she learned crafts and she devoted time to becoming a housewife. But in reality, in terms of legality, they were married. That's the betrothal. Is that the description of the parable of the ten virgins? No. There was a second stage where they actually entered into a period of commitment where they actually committed and they would consummate the marriage. And then there was a third stage which pertained to a celebration, a great party that could last days. That third stage is the aspect of the parable of the ten virgins. Analogous to that, you and I, we are married to Christ. What stage are we in? Betrothal. We're not living with Him, but we're under contract with Him, so to speak. When He returns, we will consummate that marriage. We will be with Him. And then after that, there'll be this extended celebration. That's what the parable of the ten virgins is picturing. So you have to understand all that cultural background to understand the parable of the ten virgins. It's a picture of being invited to a wedding feast. Some of the virgins are prepared, some are not. The wise and the foolish virgins. Right. That's the context there. 
which says that during the millennial kingdom, there'll be some that will have greater blessings than others depending on their preparedness. And I don't want to get off on too much of a tangent on that, but the rest of the New Testament kind of, kind of supports that idea. That parable illustrates that concept. So the cultural principle is very important. Thirdly, there's what we might describe as a theological principle. You might even say cultural historical principle, and then thirdly, theological. Look for, and what I mean theologically, look for what is the main thing that that parable is illustrating. What is the main theological truth? And if you come up with one main truth, you can oftentimes stop there. Don't read too much into every parable. Make sense? And don't base theology or doctrine on the parables. They illustrate theology. Part of the theological principle is most of the parables pertain to Jesus and some aspect of his program, to him and or his mission, and some of them specifically the kingdom The Matthew 24 parables, they relate to the millennial kingdom. That's how they begin. First verse there. Kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins. The parables in Matthew 13, those refer to a different aspect of the kingdom. A different form of the kingdom. Not the millennial kingdom. It's different. So theologically, see how that parable relates to either Jesus Christ or his program. And then there's an exegetical principle, uh, which we could say you deal with the details of the passage and you interpret literally, as we've said. Look for the punchline, if you will, if, if that parable has a punchline. Look for that. Find the contrast. What is being contrasted in this story so that you understand the truth that it's trying to convey? And again, focus on the main truth of that parable. Don't try to make it walk on all fours, so to speak. And sometimes, exegetically, you have an interpretation. Jesus interprets some of his parables for you as a pattern. Okay? That's parables. Make sense? Let's take a break.